0: All right, good morning, everybody. I want to start off by giving Reva a big thank you. Uh, she came in early this morning and made our communion bread fresh. We were out of it this morning, and so she came in and came in and made it all fresh for us. Um, that's why it tasted so good. <laughs> it was it hadn't been sitting in the freezer, so she did a really awesome job. Um, and And it's little things like that. That we're a church, we come together and we all we all get together and we do things together. Um, and I think it's important uh, that we recognize one another because we're all one big family. Um, and I love that about this church. Um, let's go to God in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for everything that you give us. Uh, we want to say a, a special. Thank you to all of the, the city workers and state workers who were out tirelessly all this week clearing the roads, uh, getting the snow out of the highway, uh, making it so that it was safe for us to come and worship you today. Uh, we ask that you would be with those who uh, aren't able to make it in today because of the snow or because they're traveling. Um, I'm not sure if Jacob and Marie are watching us online or not, or, but if they are or they're not, we just ask that you would be with them. Uh, and Father, we ask that you would be with us. We know that wherever... Two or more are gathered in your name. You are with us. And so it doesn't matter if there's five of us here or 500 of us here. We know that your presence is here, and we are so grateful for that. Uh, Father, we ask as we dive into your word, you would open our hearts to help receive your word and apply it to our lives. God, I ask that you would be with me, that you would make my words clear and concise, uh, that your message would get across. Uh, And we thank you for your son Jesus and the sacrifice that gives us the forgiveness of sins. And we pray all of this in your precious Son, Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, or you've got your Bible app, or if you've got your, I don't know other other ways, a scroll. If anybody brought a scroll, go ahead and unroll those right now. Uh, we're going to be turning to the scroll of Exodus. No, just kidding. We're going to be looking in the book of Exodus, um, and we're going to read through chapters 2, 3, and 4 today. So we're going to have a lot of Bible. Not a lot of time to get to it, um, but last week we talked about the fact that no matter the odds, God always wins, right? The Pharaoh tried to suppress the people. God always wins, and in the first couple chapters of Exodus, um, we found out that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. That's going to kind of be our theme for today and next week for Christmas, um, And specifically what God did in the first two chapters of this book is He saved the life of one specific boy, Moses. He went to great lengths to do that. And don't miss the fact that saving the life of this one boy, Moses, was part of God's grand plan to restore the world. Right? Because without a Moses, there would be no nation of Israel. And without an Israel, there would be no Jesus. And without Jesus, there is no hope. So God saves this one boy as part of his grand plan to free the people of Israel from bondage. And overall, his grand plan to restore all of humanity. So with all of that in mind, I want to open up to Exodus chapter 2. And we're going to be starting in verse 11, where we left off last week. Exodus 2:11, we read: "One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, "Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew?" The man said, "Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian?" Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Okay, so Midian, if you're not aware of where Midian is, Midian is like modern-day Saudi Arabia. Okay, so kind of put that in perspective, that's about 300 miles from northern Egypt, um, It would have taken Moses a bare minimum of 15 days to get there. Like if he was just walking nonstop for 16 hours a day, take him about two weeks, um, probably even longer. And so we have this this picture of this, this boy that God goes to great lengths to save. And the first thing we read about him as an adult is he kills a guy, buries him in the sand, and then spends two weeks as a fugitive. Right, so, and as I was reading through Exodus and preparing for this message and the ones to come, I couldn't help but notice and couldn't help but wonder, like, why did God choose him of all people? Because right, by any measure, Moses was not a good leader. Right. Setting aside the fact that he flat out murdered a dude, but then he goes to try and talk to his fellow Hebrews and tries to, you know, lead them and manage them and, and get them in line and 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 he can't even get them to listen to him. He can't even get them to go along. Nobody respects what he has to say and then to put the icing on the cake, instead of resolving the situation, he gets afraid and runs 300 miles away. And as we keep reading through Exodus, we find out that Moses is not a good leader. Um, And in fact, we're about to read here in a minute, Moses spends like two full chapters arguing with God. What I want you to notice is Moses' heart. Right? Moses is not what you would call a type A personality. Who knows what a type A personality is? Those are those people who are like, they're task oriented and they're effective leaders and they get stuff done. They're usually on a schedule. They're usually like, you know, those people usually, they make good managers, right? If you have a manager at a company, you want a type A personality. Um, In fact, I I usually fall on that end of the spectrum, right? I'm the kind of person where, you know, enough with the niceties, let's just buckle down and get stuff done. Moses, on the other hand, is a very emotional person. You notice? Like, he sees this Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews, and he can't help but not think clearly, his heart just leads him to go and do something about it. When he sees his brother fighting, he's not thinking about what's the most effective way to do this. He just knows that something's wrong and he has to stop it. And then we read here in chapter 2, when Moses is sitting down by the well, in verse 16, it says, Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. So an effective leader, an effective manager in that type of situation would have thought the thing through a little bit. Right? Cuz if there's if there's seven women at the well and there's enough full-grown men to come and, and and scatter them away, then you've got to be thinking, like, there's at least, I don't know, what, five, six full-grown men, shepherds, and Moses is out in the desert all by himself? Like, a smart manager would have thought that situation through a little bit, um, but Moses just jumps into action. He doesn't care what happens to him. He could have gotten killed. He could have gotten maimed. He could have gotten hurt. And so I think the reason God chose Moses, of all people, even though he was a terrible leader, a terrible manager, was because Moses had a heart for his people. God wasn't after his skills. God was after his heart. Um, I want to direct your attention to a couple of places in the New Testament um, where where Jesus is choosing his disciples and what kind of disciples he chooses. Uh, I want to look at Matthew chapter 9. This is uh, the very end of Matthew 9, when Jesus is choosing his disciples. And in verse 35, we read, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. And then in chapter 10, he calls his disciples. In chapter 10, verse 5, he says, Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. See, Jesus didn't have a problem with the Gentiles or the Samaritans. That's, why he didn't tell, that's not why he told them not to go there. The reason he sent them directly to the nation of Israel is because he saw that they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd and they needed help. They needed saving. So he calls this on all-hands-on-deck meeting with his disciples and says, look, we've got lost sheep out there. We need to go save them. And then in a few verses down, in verse 16, Jesus gives this warning to his disciples. He says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And see, right here is where we get the picture of what a disciple looks like. It starts with the heart. And in Jesus' warning, he tells him, he says, you need to be street smart, too. You need to be a good manager. But it starts with the heart. And we see with Jesus' interaction with his disciples and God's interaction with Moses is that God starts with people and wants them to be innocent as doves, and then he will teach them to be shrewd as serpents later on down the road. And then a little bit later in in Matthew 10, we read, um, Jesus says, Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. And then this verse in verse 20 is very important. It says, For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Okay, I want you to keep that verse in your memory bank, and remember that as we go back to Exodus, and we pick up, I want to pick up back in in chapter 3, and read about Moses' interaction with God. So we're going to skip a little bit. Um, In chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why does the bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. So a couple of really quick things I want to point out about that section. Um... First of all, in verse two, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him. But then later on in verse four, it says when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, he called from within the bush. Okay, so which is it? Is it is it an angel or is it the Lord Himself? You can you can shut your guess out. Both. That's that's a maybe. Um, the word angel literally just means messenger. This is a messenger of the Lord. In fact, when we read the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, they're referred to as messengers of the Lord. It's the same word for angel. Um, In English, we have two separate words. That's an earthly messenger or a heavenly messenger. But in Greek and Hebrew, there's just one word. So the only way you can know if you're talking about an angel or a messenger is if it says something like an angel of the Lord. Right, A messenger of the Lord. And so I guess the next question we have to ask is, okay, so is this a messenger or is this the Lord himself? Who is speaking through the bush? Um, I want to pose a question to you all. If you could get in a time machine and you could go back in time and talk to Moses, and you said the words Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to Moses, would he understand what you meant? No. Why not? That wasn't even a concept in Moses' mind. What do you mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because the Son had not been born on earth yet. The Spirit had not been revealed as it was on the day of Pentecost, right? So Moses wouldn't have understood it. And so what I think we're seeing here in the bush is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Moses just doesn't know what word to use to describe it. Him, excuse me, to describe Him. Okay? So, and this is, the reason I think this is because this is not the first time, this is not the only time that God's Spirit is revealed in the form of fire. This is one of those fingerprints. So, if you look in uh, Acts chapter 2, I'll put it on the screen, so you have to turn there if you don't want to. Um, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it says, they saw what seemed to be tongues of Fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak to each other in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Right, so that's what I think we're seeing in the bush is the Holy Spirit. Um, And Moses has no idea what this eternal flame is, but he knows it comes from God in some way. And so he goes over to see this miraculous sight, and here's what here's what God says to him. In verse 5. It says, Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then God says this. Remember this compassion thing we talked about. God says, The Lord says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Doesn't that sound just like Jesus' message to his disciples? I've seen their pain, and I have compassion on them, and I want to do something about it. And so I think the reason God picks Moses has nothing to do with the fact that he's a competent manager, because he's not. And even Moses understands the fact that he's not a competent manager because when God calls him to do this task, in verse 11, Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, I'd be willing to bet that there are times in your life when you feel like you don't have what it takes to go out into the world and make disciples. And the reason I'm willing to make that bet is because I feel that way sometimes. And I'm a preacher. Right? This is my livelihood. This is what I do. I eat, sleep, and breathe the Bible seven days a week. And even I have moments where I feel like I don't have anything to bring to the table. Can I let you in on a little secret? We don't. We don't have anything to bring to the table. You don't. I don't. Moses didn't. The disciples didn't. None of us has anything to give to God that he doesn't already have. So Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And God says, no, 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 Moses, you're a really good leader. I think you've really got what it takes to be part of the team. No, that's not what he says. Hold on. Oh, that's right. God says, I think you have the perfect personality to go and convince Pharaoh. No, that's not what it says either. What does does it say here? Verse 12. Oh, there it is. Sorry. God says, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Right? So they're They're on Mount Sinai, and God tells Moses, this is the sign, you will worship me on this mountain. And there's exactly two places in Scripture where God describes exactly where he will be worshipped. This is one of them. And in both both instances, it's not phrased as a a command. It's not like, you must worship me on this mountain. It's a statement of fact. Because you can... We have free will. We can ignore a command. And I wouldn't recommend it. Kind of a bad idea. But we have the ability to ignore God's commands. This is not a commandment. This is a statement of fact. God says, you will worship me on this mountain. And the second, this is the only other time in which God reveals where he will be worshipped. This is in John 4. This is when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well about the same mountain. And Jesus says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming where you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then a little in in verse 23, he says, A time is coming and has now come where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. You sense in a pattern of what kind of people God is after. Spirit and truth, not skills and abilities and personalities. Moses took a little bit longer to understand the program. He begins to argue with God. He says, what if they don't believe me? What if they want to know what your name is? What if they want to know this? In verse 4, I'm going to skip a little bit again, just for the sake of time. Excuse me, chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, after he's continually arguing with God, it says, Moses answered, What if they don't believe me? Or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? All right. So God is giving Moses more proof. God is giving Moses more and more proof. He says, What's that in your hand? A staff. He replied, as if God didn't already know. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out, took hold of the snake, and turned it back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand in his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Now, put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground the water you take from the river will become blood on the ground So God is God is not giving Moses assurance that Moses is good at his job You notice that when Moses says, Well, what if I'm not good at it? What if I can't do it? What if I God's not trying to build Moses up and convince them that he's a good leader. God is giving Moses assurance that God is a good God. See, that's a big difference. Sometimes we need assurance in our life. Well, what if I can't talk to this person about the gospel? What if I can't? What if I can't? What if I can't? What if I can't? So what if you can't? God's not interested in what you can do. He's interested in what he can do. And so Moses goes back and forth with God about whether or not he's the right person for the God, and God right person for the job. And God finally gets fed up with it. He says, this is fine. Take Aaron with you. Take, take your brother Aaron. You just hold the stick, right? I'll let Aaron do all the talking. You just take the staff so that you can do the miracles. And Moses finally concedes, and he goes back to his father-in-law and says, hey, we're gonna go run back to Egypt. We're gonna, we're gonna take my wife and kids, and we're gonna load up and we're gonna free the Israelites. And then what we read next in in chapter four, this next section I wanna read, is probably one of the most difficult passages in all of the book of Exodus. It's the most difficult to understand, it's the most difficult to wrap your head around. And so I want to make sure we focus in on this passage. I want to read starting in verse 19. And I just kind of want to work through it with you all. Um, so what I encourage you to do, if you've got your Bible in hand or your notebook, or your app or whatever you do, um, go ahead and circle or highlight or or make a big star over anything that's confusing, anything you that doesn't make sense to you, anything you have questions about. Um, and I'll share what I have. And if there's something that you noticed, you can ask me about it. And maybe we'll work through it together. But I want to I read in, in verse 19. It says, Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt... See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zephora took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Okay, so there's a lot there, but I wanted to get that whole passage in there. I have quite a few things circled in my confusion list. Um, first of which is the fact that God said that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. And that confused me a little bit because it raises the interesting question. If, if God is responsible for hardening Pharaoh's heart, then how can we possibly hold Pharaoh responsible? That was the first question that came to my mind. Well, when we get uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the plagues, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more. Um, But for now, I want to point you all to Mark chapter 4, and I want to look at the heart. Uh, In Mark chapter 4, in verse 3, this is a parable of the seeds. Jesus says, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that it did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop. Some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. we all know the parable, right? We all know that story that Jesus tells. So the same seeds in the same general location with the same amount of water and the same amount of sunshine all did different things, didn't they? So in verse 6, um, it says the sun comes up and withers the plants. And so you might say, well, how can, how can that farmer be held responsible? The sun came and withered those plants but didn't that same sun shine on all the other seeds too? So you can't say that it was the sun. The sun might have been responsible for withering the plants, but the difference was the soil and how each soil received the seeds. And Jesus goes on later to say that that soil represents our hearts. So as we take a look at Exodus, and it says that God hardens Pharaoh's hearts, God revealed himself the same way to every single person in Egypt, and some chose to believe and some did not. So I think that if, if we think that God is somehow responsible for Pharaoh's sin, it's just like saying the sun is responsible for withering those plants. It's not. The sun shines on every seed, on every plant. It's how the soil, it's how the heart receives the word that makes the difference. Um, At least that's how I work through it. And then I want to look at this very next, uh, very difficult section, where God says, because you refuse to let my firstborn son, Israel, go, I'll kill your firstborn son. And that's followed right up with verse 24. Uh, Where did it go here? Oh, next page. Verse 24, it says, At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Well, that kind of comes out of the blue, doesn't it? God sent Moses on this big quest, and then all of a sudden he's changed his mind and he wants to kill him. Well, this is one of those times in which I'm actually not a big fan of the, the NIV, um, because in the original text it doesn't say the word Moses. It just says the Lord met him and was about to kill him. All right, so, so some of our Bibles do our interpreting for us, and they just assume that we're talking about Moses. Um, but it's actually not clear whether or not we're talking about Moses or Moses' son. I guess that doesn't really make it much more easy to understand, does it? That's still kind of difficult. But, but if, we, if, we, if we're talking about Moses' son, we start to see a little bit of a pattern happening in the Bible when it comes to firstborn sons. And so I want to kind of run through this, this notion, this idea of the firstborn son. Um, The firstborn son since Cain and Abel was the son who inherited a double portion of their father's inheritance. Right? So let's put that in numbers. So if I had $100 and three sons, my firstborn would get $50, and the other two would get $25. He gets a double portion. Does that kind of make sense? And that's the way it had been, um, presumably, since Cain and Abel. Right? And so if you're talking about livestock or money, that's great for the firstborn son, but there's something else that each and every person has inherited since the time of Adam, and that's Adam's curse of sin and death. Well, I don't want to inherit that. But we have been inheriting the curse of sin and the curse of death for thousands of years passed down from generation to generation to generation because of Adam's sin. And that might, that's not making things easier, is it? Because that's a very difficult thing to think about, isn't it? Why should I inherit sin from Adam? Well, I can't tell you what I feel, I can't tell you what I wish was true, I can only tell you what is true. It doesn't change the reality of the situation no matter how much I would like things to be different. The way things are is we live in a broken world that's filled with sin and each person inherits that sin. But, God has written an escape clause into that contract. It's very important. So the contract says that the wages of sin is death. But God added an addendum to that contract that says, I will give you a way to nullify the punishment that comes along with sin. And so for Moses, the escape clause was circumcision. That was the covenant that he was under. And again, I don't know why God chose that particular action as the sign of his covenant. It seems strange to me, but it's not any more strange than his current covenant which is being dunked in a tank of water. They're both strange. I don't know why God does the things he does, but I know he does it. And sometimes we have to just be content with not knowing why and just be grateful that God has given us these avenues in the first place. And so we have this this sin that's inherited, this firstborn concept. And here's, here's the other part of this. Um, in Romans 5, this is the other part of this contract that's so important. Paul says in Romans 5, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Right? See this idea that sin entered the world through Adam? We're all stuck with it. The punishment of sin was passed on from generation to generation, and we have this double inheritance of the firstborn son idea. And so God's addendum to the contract is somebody's firstborn sin is going to have to receive the inheritance. Somebody's firstborn is going to have to take on the punishment of all of this sin. And God says, it can be mine or yours. I'll let you choose. Jesus inherited a double portion of the punishment that you and I deserve. Think about that. He took on the weight of all of our sins when He didn't have to. He lived a sinless life. He was the only person alive who didn't have to receive that punishment, but He chose to do it willingly because He had compassion on you. We go all the way back to God looking at His people in Exodus. We go all the way back to Jesus looking at the nation of Israel. He saw you. Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and said, I want to do something about that. He saw you crying out because of the slave drivers of your sin and he came to rescue you. Pharaoh's firstborn son didn't have to die. Any more than you and I have to die. Because God always makes a way for us to be right with Him. And it's our choice to accept it and enter into that contract or not. There's always an escape clause. God says, "For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, implied in that, that's the firstborn, His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And I'm grateful for that. I ask that you would bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we don't know why things are the way they are. We don't know why we have to live in a world that's full of sin and death and darkness and suffering. We don't know why you allowed Adam to sin in the first place, but we know that you love us enough, that you have enough compassion on us, that you choose to rescue us, God. We're so grateful for that. We're grateful that you see us like you saw your people in Egypt, and you have compassion on us, and you want to come save us. And God, we just ask that you would help us to take on the task that you gave Moses, to go out and see your people, to see them suffering and 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 in pain. And we would ask that you would just help us to go out and rescue them, to bring them into the fold, Lord. We ask that you would give us the courage and the strength to go out and do those things, not because we have anything to offer, but because you are so good. We ask that you would be with all of those who are not here today, all of those throughout the town of Alliance, the state of Nebraska, through all of our country, through all of your world, Lord, that you would help us to go out and make disciples of all nations. And we pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. And the church said, Amen. Alright, thank you all. Just a moment here. And I would like to sing a song of invitation. Um, this one's kind